recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, October 26th, 2013. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. This is the fourth segment in our series, Explaining 2C Line, Pragmatic Genesis. Tonight we will be beginning a discussion of Genesis chapter 3. I'd like to make a few remarks about the material we presented last week. I think that the focal point of last week's presentation should have been the appearance of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as soon as Adam was in the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was ostensibly in the garden long before Adam was placed there and on this earth long before Adam was created. Some people want to perceive that the angels which left their first estate were the ancient Israelites who failed. However, that interpretation is not at all scriptural. Jude compares certain Israelites who failed to the fallen angels, or the angels who left their first estate. However, those angels whom Jude describes are interlopers among us. All Israelites sin, and many of us fail. That doesn't make us all fallen angels. Those angels Jude describes are interlopers among us, men who have stolen in, men predestined from of old for the judgment of the wrath of God. Twice dead spots in our feasts of charity and clouds without water who can never have a share in our inheritance. Because the darkness, the gloom of darkness is reserved to them forever. These things cannot be said of Israelites. The angels who left their first estate must therefore be the fallen angels of Luke 10.18 and Revelation chapter 12, who had fallen long ago because that old serpent who's already in the garden is one of them. And the tree of knowledge is already in the garden when Adam is placed there. Therefore, two seed line would be better understood if it were termed two tree line. And that's the, that, that's the honest facts. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is our adversary. It's the race that Satan became, Satan being a fallen angel, and a third of the host of heaven, no matter where you want to think they fell from, they are that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam was shown every animal which Yahweh created, ostensibly, in my humble opinion, because I can't prove the apocryphal literature, I can't prove that it's canonical because it's so fragmented, However, it's very clear that not only Jude, but Peter and Paul quoted to and alluded to it. It's clear that the sin of the fallen angels was to corrupt animal kind, according to the Enoch literature, which the apostles quoted. Therefore, Adam was shown Yahweh's creation and was shown that he could not find a mate 
among those animals so that he wouldn't repeat the sins of the fallen angels, in my humble opinion. Therefore Yahweh created a wife for him. However, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in the garden even before that wife was created. Once again, I have sword brethren here with me to assist in a presentation of Genesis, or a discussion at least, of Genesis chapter 3. Hello, Brian. Hello, how are you tonight? Wonderful. Any thoughts? Any thoughts on last week? Well, I've gathered together a fair amount of material right here, and the the non-Jewish quarter of identity, our quarter of identity, we seem to be on the same page here that the scriptural law is kind after his kind, and as Pastor Gaiman points out, this is mentioned ten times in Genesis 1. And I'm, I, I found that in this book, Do All Races Share in Salvation? For Whom Did Jesus Christ Die? And then I have a book from Kingdom Identity Ministries, the American Institute of Theology in front of me here, Genesis 3.15, the apple story, the war between the children of light and the children of darkness. So th there seem to be a number of views of the creation, and most share in what we've taught, that the Genesis account is the story of the creation of our people. We could sit here and speculate all day on where the other people come from, but that won't achieve anything because it's all just speculation. Well, well, it is speculation. That this is uh, I coined this series, or at least the first part of it, pragmatic Genesis, because it's Genesis according to the Scripture. I'm not adding anything to it. I wouldn't add anything to it that I can't cite from the Scripture, except for, because the Scripture is obviously not complete, some apocryphal literature which agrees with the New Testament, which agrees with the words of Christ, some apocryphal literature which the apostles happen to quote from. And, and we'll have some more apocryphal literature tonight, what, which um, that, there's one citation I had tonight which the apostles didn't quote from. I, I'll explain that when we get to it. it. It's not, I don't need it to understand the book of Genesis the way I've come to understand it. We don't need it. However, it certainly helps in our understanding, and, and it certainly assists us to see how at least some first century Christians, and, and I would call non-Edomites, who were before Christ, who were Hebrews, I would call them Christians because they're pre-Christ Christians. Right, well, Christ saw Abraham. It, it's, it tells us how they looked at certain scriptures. And we'll see some of that tonight. And that's the value in, in some of the apocryphal literature anyway. The, um, the Enoch literature, I prefer the Enoch literature amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's what I quoted from here last week, was the Dead Sea Scrolls Enoch literature and not the Ethiopic, which I really don't trust. However, a lot of the story, a lot of the same... Um, passages in, in roughly the same shape do exist in the Ethiopic. Uh, I simply prefer the Dead Sea Scroll literature because it's at least native to Judea and to our race. Any other comments? If we're going to be quoting from the Enoch here, I'll have to run upstairs and pull it off the shelf. Well, that's okay. I don't have anything from Enoch tonight. Maybe you should have done that in preparation. <laughs> well, you said that we probably 
be lucky to get past Genesis 3.13, and most of what I wanted to bring in from Enoch, and most of what I wanted to bring in from other sources is probably more relevant to Genesis 3.15 and beyond. Well, well, right. The, the um, discussions of Cain, who Cain married, that, that's all relative to Genesis chapter 4. Um, conjecture over who Seth may have possibly married, we'll talk about that, but we'll talk about it with Genesis chapter 5. Some of the um, favorite passages of two seed liners in the New Testament are more pertinent to Genesis chapter 4 and the later verses of Genesis 3.15. That's, that, that's fine. We could still discuss a lot of that material here tonight. I believe it's just um, handy to proceed and and to understand Genesis one layer at a time rather than bounce around. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, I'm going to read half of it. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. Now now maybe you want to explain the... the, the, um, so some of the things that people say about this, especially from the, the quarter which likes to, um, to find the other races in the book of Genesis. We discussed earlier on the phone this afternoon, people see this and they immediately jump, oh, the serpent's more subtle than any beast of the field which Yahweh God made. Oh, Yahweh God made the beasts of the field and he made the serpent. He made them both. It says right here, he more subtle than any beast which he made. Well, well, right, and that's childish because the beast of the field is simply the cattle and and the deer and the horses and and the the, the antelope and things like that. Right, and we discussed an analogy earlier that you know if you see somebody working hard and you comment that person works harder than any of my employees, that doesn't mean that person's one of your employees. That just means that person's working harder than any of your employees. That guy could just be someone from across town. Well, Clifton Emmerheiser likes to state that Yahweh created the horse and Yahweh created the donkey, but Yahweh did not create the mule. Just because there are, on, on, on a couple of occasions, there are references to a beast of the field which appears to be speaking of hominids or other races. It's not even proper to call them other races. That doesn't mean that Yahweh God created them. The phrase is used as a pejorative. It's used as a pejorative like I call some people clowns. There's nothing wrong with a clown. A clown is somebody that dresses up in funny clothes and goes off to make kids laugh or, or sometimes adults in a circus or, or, or at a birthday party. There's nothing wrong with the clown himself. But when you take somebody that's claiming to be a Christian identity pastor and you call him a clown, that's a pejorative. It, and, and in some cases, I'm sure it's insulting to the clowns. There are those who want to use this singular statement in Genesis 3.1 in order to somehow prove that if the serpent is really a person, <clears throat> then the beast of the field in this passage also has to be people. In their idiocy, they fail to see that this is an allegory. This is not scientific nomenclature. When you see that phrase, beast of the field, and you perceive that it might be referring to two-legged animals or beasts, well, well just because those two-legged animals may be hominids or, or, or upright beings with the power of speech, that doesn't mean that that's a scientific term for them, and that this is what that's describing. 
let's say that um let's say that I wanted to write a book about the development of a very fast and sleek sports car. In the opening line of my book, I want to explain why I gave the sports car a certain name. Therefore, the first line of chapter one in my book reads, the Jaguar was the fastest beast on the plains of Africa. Well, wait a minute. The Jaguar, Jaguars were never in Africa. Jaguars are in um, South Africa. Well, well, it doesn't matter, Brian. Oh, okay. I'm just being... It doesn't matter. I could say the Jaguar was the fastest beast on the plains of Asia. All right. Does that make all of the other beasts on the plains of Africa, does that make them cars? No. It's explaining why I'm calling my car a Jaguar. I want to call my car that I'm building a Jaguar because the Jaguar is the fastest beast on the plains of wherever. Do you see what I mean? Right. It's just a comparison. It's only a comparison. I'm giving the reason why I'm calling my car a Jaguar. If I'm giving the reason for why I call my car a Jaguar, does that mean that all of the other beasts on the plains are really cars? No, of course they're not. Lions and tigers aren't cars. We're, we're not talking about cars. I'm talking about a Jaguar. And that's why I'm naming my car a Jaguar. I'm making a simple analogy. The serpent of Genesis 3.1 is not yet a person in this statement. It's only a snake. In this statement, it's only a snake. We don't realize that it's a cognizant hominid, a being, a person. Let's call it a person. We don't realize it's a person until the subsequent verses. Right here, this is an introduction. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. That doesn't mean that the beasts of the fields are people. Right. To make such an assertion is sophistic. And it actually betrays one as lacking the intelligence to understand a simple analogy. That, can only, that person can only fool like-minded idiots. Right. Well, there's also another possibility, Bill, that the person understands the analogy and right. they have an agenda. Well, well yes, that is, a, that is a possibility. I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. Here... In the opening sentence of Genesis 3.1, we have an analogy. And from this analogy, we learn one thing. We learn why this particular individual is being called a serpent. But we do not learn that, an, we do not learn that lesson until we realize in subsequent statements that the serpent isn't really a snake, that it's actually a particular individual. So this is only an analogy. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. That only tells us why this being is being called a serpent. Well, you know, um, they called Rommel the desert fox. They called um, Francis Marion the swamp fox. That didn't mean Rommel was actually a fox running around on four legs in North Africa. Well, well right, and it didn't mean that the British generals were rabbits. It's ridiculous to, to take an analogy and try to force a literal translation on it and, and then try to, by that literal translation, force the idea that the other races were created in the fifth day of Genesis. There's nowhere in Scripture that supports that idea. It's the presumption 
of a single individual who spread it to other individuals. It's a presumption. That's all it is. The Septuagint translators and all of the Bible translators and all of the Bible writers all throughout the Bible, all throughout every single book of the Bible, understood that the beasts of the field in Genesis referred to animals. The phrase beast of the field appears in many scriptures where the context insists that the reference is to animals, wild animals, domesticated animals, horses, elands, antelopes. It doesn't matter. It refers to animals very clearly in many cases. There is not one explicit reference to show us that there were hominids in the beast of the field creation or in the beast creation of Genesis. Not one. You can't build doctrines on presumptions. Your doctrines have to be built on explicit scripture with a sound foundation. And he said unto the woman, yeah, has God said, you shall not eat, shall you not eat, I'm sorry, of every tree of the garden. And only here, since the serpent, we see, has the faculty of speech and logic and reasoning, may we perceive that the word is actually being used as a metaphor to describe a person. Because snakes don't talk. Right. Yet, since there are evidently not yet any other men, Adam hasn't had children. This person cannot be an Adam or a man. It can only be a fallen angel. As we have seen, that the serpent of old is directly related to the fallen angels, and this is that serpent of Revelation chapter 12. I've heard some outlandish theories, but I've never heard the theory that the serpent is another Adam. Is there anybody who actually teaches that? Well... Eliminate the possibilities, and, and I'm simply eliminating the possibilities. I'm addressing not only two seed liners, and I'm addressing not only Israelite dentists, but this program is also for the benefit of mainstream Christians, because many of the people that download podcasts from my website and read my papers are mainstream Christians, right? So they, they would think that it's just a talking snake, and it told the woman to munch on an apple. That's a great possibility. That, that's, that, that's the child story that was invented sometime between then and now. And, and the sad thing is that adults growing up and reaching maturity still believe the children's story, still believe a story that was developed for the sake of five and six and seven-year-olds who were reading the Bible. Because at one time the Bible was the book which children learn to read from. That story was invented for those children. Adults should know better. At some point in our history, the adults decided that the children's story was nicer and they forgot the adult story. That's my opinion. It's very clear that the ancient Hebrews believed this analogy, this parable in Genesis chapter 3, to be all about 
sexual seduction and sexual awakening. And, and, they didn't want to talk, and they didn't want to talk to children about that, so instead they told them a little fairy tale. Absolutely. And the fairy tale became a substitute for the truth, and people forgot the truth. In the first century, they knew the truth, and we'll see that. We'll see that here tonight. It appears here as if the woman was left alone when the serpent first approached her. Paul used this very instance as an analogy. This very instance, I believe, was his example when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, speaking of husbands and wives, in verse 5, defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, that Satan not tempt you for your incontinency. In other words, don't leave your wife alone, and wives, don't leave your husbands alone, because they're going to be tempted and seduced, and their incontinency is going to lead them to fail. Paul is making a direct analogy in that statement based upon Genesis chapter 3. Well, Paul clearly understood two seed lines, didn't he? Well, well, yes, he did. And and that's proven not only in Romans, but in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and several other places. In Romans 16.20, which we'll probably get to sooner or later in this series, I mean the next program or two, I would not attempt to assert that the fourth book of Maccabees is canonical. It's not. I'll tell you it's not. It's certainly not canonical. It certainly, certainly does not represent the word of God as the books of the prophets do or, or the books of, of the apostles, the epistles and gospels of the apostles. However, the fourth book of Maccabees is indeed of great antiquity. Eusebius and Jerome both knew it and attributed it. They actually attributed it. They thought Flavius Josephus wrote it. I'm not certain of the merits of that attribution. It was most likely written before the end of the first century A.D. The main purpose of the fourth book of the Maccabees seems to be the illustration that a pious mind prevails over emotion and lust, that we can learn self-control through godly thinking, and, and that's clearly the case. And therefore, there are what seems to be allusions to Greek Stoicism in four Maccabees, where ancient works such as this are most valued, in my opinion, is that they offer an insight into how their authors interpreted certain scriptures. That's where four Maccabees is important. It's not canon. But these are first century Christians, or, or ostensibly Christians. They're pious people. The book may have been written in the first century B.C. It was definitely written before the end of the first century A.D. I'm going to quote from Four Maccabees from Brenton Septuagint. From chapter 18, verse 7. And yes, Four Maccabees is found in the Septuagint, in Brenton Septuagint. It's, it, it's also found, I believe, in Catholic Bibles. I could be wrong. And the righteous mother of the seven children spoke 
as follows to her offspring. I was a pure virgin and went not beyond my father's house, but I took care of the built-up rib. No destroyer of the desert or ravisher of the plain injured me, nor did the destructive, deceitful snake make spoil of my chaste virginity. And I remained with my husband during the period of my prime. This first century Christian understood that this exchange between Eve and the serpent was a what was a, a, a an episode of sexual seduction, and that's how Paul viewed it. And we'll see that again within the next um, half hour, probably. I have another quote from Paul. This exchange in Genesis chapter 3 between Eve and the serpent, if you understand Socratic dialogue, it's a sort of evil forerunner to Socratic dialogue. The serpent is the wise, or in this case cunning, old man who shows Eve the, con- the inconsistency in her moral beliefs, thus pretending to show her a better way. That was the basis for the Socratic dialogues, that a wise old man would show a, a younger person who had a different religion the inconsistency in his beliefs and, and his moral beliefs especially. And, and then as soon as the wise old man was able to do that, and show the young person the inconsistency, he, he would teach him a better philosophy, right? That's the basis for all the Socratic dialogues. This is an evil forerunner to that, because it's basically the same method, but it's used for nefarious purposes. When the serpent prevails, he is able to corrupt both her and subsequently her husband. Like the episodes of Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3 is a parable. It represents factual events. However, it is a simplified story told with analogies that represent both moral lessons and historical truths. Do you have any comments? I'm wondering, Bill, have you, you've read some of the Socratic dialogues at this point now? or I, I read a few Socratic dialogues a long time ago, but, but no, I haven't read all of Plato. The Socratic dialogues basically, to the most they survive in the works of Plato. Right, Plato using Socrates as the main character, and we assume in most instances he's probably advancing Plato's views of Socrates rather than a direct literal record or account of exactly what Socrates said and what Socrates taught. And then, of course, Aristotle comes along, and Aristotle has his own views, and it's quite clear Aristotle and Plato differ on numerous key issues. But none of, none of these um, gentlemen are malicious. They're not trying to mislead anybody into you know, um, ruination or damnation. Well, well, no, but this exchange between Eve and the serpent is very much like a Socratic dialogue. However, it's used for nefar- the, the, the serpent's intentions are nefarious rather than edifying right to 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 in in other words to make you doubt 
the reasons for your moral position, so not so that you can be shown a better way, which was the intent of the Socratic dialogue, for better or worse, right or wrong, that was its intent, but so that your moral position can be undermined. Right, and this just really aggravates me to no end that we can read Genesis 3, we see that the man and the woman are in the physical presence of God, he's in the garden, he says, don't do this, the serpent comes along and says, oh no, do that and you'll be fine, you'll be on as God, so they go ahead and they do that, and there are people in the Jewish quarter of CI who would have us believe that in the end, the other races just go back to, you know, some Disney World paradise, wherever they came from, will be separated by um, borders that are just lines on a map, but because we'll have been restored and we'll have our Shekinah glory again, that we won't mix with them and we won't touch the unclean thing. Well, well, right, and if Adam and Eve couldn't do it when they were in direct contact with Yahweh our God, that then a million Adams and a million Eves sure as hell aren't going to do it. Right, and... My understanding is there won't be race mixing in the kingdom because there won't be any races to mix with. Well, well, right. I mean, that's what Obadiah 15 and 16 really teach, and that's what Jeremiah 31 and and, and I believe the other the, the the other instances in chapter 40 or 42 or something like that. That's uh, I mean, I've discussed those end time prophecies at great detail in other venues, and, and they're very clear. Yahweh, God, will make a full, end, a full end of all the nations where the children of Israel were scattered. A full end of all of them. Obadiah says, they shall be as though they had never been. The reasons for that are because Yahweh did not create them. They're not found in Genesis chapter 1. They're not found in Genesis chapter 2. They're not found anywhere in Scripture until, until they basically encroach upon the Adamic world because at the fringes of the Adamic world there was lots of trade in them and mating with them that they're able to do so and they begin to invade the Adamic world where Yahweh our God is using them as a scourge against us. And the only biblical way to look at the other races is to go to the prophecy of Joel and, and look at where Yahweh talks about my great army, which I sent among you in order to punish you, the canker worm, the pommel worm, the, the, the locust, and the caterpillar. That's the other races, and that's the only biblical way to look at them. No other way of looking at them is biblical. They are the canker worm, the pommel worm, the caterpillar, and the locust. That's all they are. They are the beasts the, the beasts who devour the children of Israel in Isaiah 56. They are the beasts who were sown into the houses of Israel and Judah in Jeremiah 31:28. That's how to look at them. And that's all, that, that's consistent with all scripture, all eschatology, all of the parables of Christ. It's consistent with the Genesis account. It's consistent with the entire Bible from end to end. And that's right. the only way to look at the other races, which is consistent with the entire Bible from end to end. They're a tear and that sowed the the here. <laughs> they're the they're the tares sowed amongst the wheat while the man slept, sowed by the enemy. Well, well, that that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there, and those fallen angels were corrupting the creation of God. And it's very plain in Scripture.
And that's all they are, is a corruption of the creation of God. The kingdom of heaven is like a gnat. When cast into, into the sea, pulls up every kind. And every kind is only reduced to two kinds. The good kind go into vessels and are saved for the kingdom of God. They're the children of Israel. The bad kind, they're not even thrown back into the sea. They're not even left on the shore to rot. They're burned in the fire. I would call that the lake of fire. I'm sure that's what Christ was talking about. There's only two kinds. There's no third choices anywhere in Scripture. So it's not an issue of sheep, bad goats, and good goats? All the goats go into the fire. All the sheep are saved. You don't see any crossing. There's no crossing over. There's no, oh, you were a good goat, so you go hang out over there with the sheep, and we'll get you into the kingdom. God doesn't compromise his word. Clowns compromise the word of God. God doesn't compromise his word. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden... God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And this is Eve. This is the, the depiction of Eve talking to the serpent, right? The woman is repeating instructions. She has to be repeating instructions because when Adam was given these instructions in Genesis chapter 2, the woman wasn't created yet. And there's reasons for that. That there's reasons why we have that, and we'll get to those in a second. I want to read um, from Genesis 2.15. This is where those instructions exist, right? And Yahweh God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And Yahweh God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. So, so we see that Adam must have transmitted these instructions to Eve. And I believe that's a model for us. In Genesis 2.16, Yahweh God said, Yahweh God commanded the man. Here we find direct support for the concept of the patriarchal family hierarchy. From this we must learn that what Paul had said in Ephesians 5.23 was perceived to be Yahweh's design from the beginning. And Paul says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. I believe we see that here, because just as God expressed his will to man, the man should in turn govern his own household. Eve did not hear these words from Yahweh himself, and therefore must have gotten him from her husband. I think, uh, I believe that's to show that consistency of the patriarchal hierarchy in our society, which we should have. That's why this is written in this manner. That, that's my opinion, right? That makes sense. As we demonstrated in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the Genesis accounts are not chronological records of historical events. Rather, from Genesis 2-4, we have a series of episodes told in parables describing the creation and the earliest history of man, which represent actual events using 
allegories. That's what a parable is, right? To understand them, we must look at them through the words of Christ and his apostles given to us in the New Testament. And, and we explained the reasons for that at great length last week. Genesis 2.17 tells us that the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, here in Genesis 3.3, 3, is not like the other trees of the garden, but rather it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's the tree in the midst of the garden. So that's what's being referred to here by Eve, without a doubt. Now, on a more philosophical level, we might inquire, why are there other races in the garden? Are there other races in the garden? Well, there's certainly the serpent in the garden, right? I mean, why is the serpent... Well, well there's a, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, right? I, I consider that one race. I'm sorry. Right. Even though that they might have become Negroes and Orientals and whatever they were, they were that already by this time. They're basically just one race. They're, they're, they're not... They're not even a race. It's not even right to speak to them, speak of them as a race if they're not part of God's original creation. All right. So if God is in the garden, why does he allow the serpent in the garden? Well, well you, you know, the serpent is already in the garden. The angels fell, right? The angels which left their first estate. The angels which left their first estate are already on earth, right? Right, I understand that. but And basically all over the earth. I mean, we could look at it that way. It's conjecture. Well, well, there's people found in archaeology all over the earth that predate Adam. They clearly pre are found in – even if you don't believe carbon dating and all that garbage, most of it's hocus-pocus, I agree. But they're found in context which that their bodies and, and their remains and, and their constructions and the things that they created with their hands are found in contexts which clearly, clearly predate the, the dawn of the Adamic race on Earth. Even if you don't want to believe the scientific dating, they clearly predate the Adamic race on Earth. There should be no doubt about that. Well, I understand that, and I agree. I'm just wondering, you know, if somebody has rebelled against you and they kept not their first estate and they've been cast out, why allow them to mingle alongside your new creation? Well, well, okay, it's a philosophical question, right? right? It's, it's a philosophical it's, question. It's, it's, it's not really... It's a philosophical answer because Scripture doesn't tell us that. Scripture's not explicit. It doesn't outline that explicitly, right? Right, I mean, it, it doesn't get into God's motivations, and, you know, we really can't put ourselves in the mind of God. We can't... Right, well, it. well, it's my opinion. It, it's my opinion that, that God had planned his children from, from, from the, the time he conceived the universe, right? That right. each one of us was created at the moment that God conceived the universe, right? Right. So, so even though we didn't exist in our own minds, in our own experience, we were created in his mind and in the loins of our fathers, right? That's the way I look at that, right? Right. Now, I believe that because that there was a rebellion against God by our forerunners, our forerunners are not necessarily our ancestors, right? Because of that rebellion, that Yahweh God wanted all of his children to experience what existence is like in rebellion to him. So that we would learn and there wouldn't be another rebellion, right? So that we would conform ourselves to his will and learn the importance of why we should do that. So our fall was planned, so from that fall we could receive redemption. 
Absolutely. And 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 learn the the valuable lessons of, of why we should never revolt and, and rebel against our God. And, and the people that put too much emphasis on this life find injustice in that. I don't find any injustice in that because the reward of this suffering is forever. The, the reward is eternal life, right? So, so this suffering, and, and this Paul tried to, to, to um, explain this, Peter tried to explain this, that the reward is forever. So, so the things in this life are, are real, even though we should love each other and love our wives and our kindred and our brother, and, and that's fine and we better, but the reward is forever. So the sufferings of this life are immaterial. They're immaterial. And materialist people put way too much stress on this life. When in the long run, it doesn't matter. This life doesn't matter. What you've lost doesn't matter. What you've loved is more important. And again, we see more evidence that Greek culture is Hebrew because Plato and Aristotle both taught, well, Plato explicitly taught that we existed in the non-corporeal spiritual plane in the soul form before we took on physical form for this limited finite physical existence and that would somewhat match with what you said that we existed in the mind of God before we were created physically well right we didn't exist on our own minds we didn't have cognizance we weren't conscious but there are clowns that the clown had, that, that thinks he has truth from God he, he believes that in the um, and, and he's a clown we, um, well, well I, I demonstrated in the first segment or, or the second segment of the series that um, the spirit, according to the words of Paul of Tarsus, and this is, us, I mean, it's fully evident in several places in the, Old, in the Old Testament, the spirit is born and develops and grows with the Adamic body, with the natural body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. It's sown in weakness. It, it's raised in honor. It's sown a physical seed. It's raised a spiritual seed. That, that's um, very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That your spirit, even though Yahweh God knew you before the world, before the world began, your spirit didn't actually come into its being until your physical body is born. And then your spiritual body is also born. God knows us in his prescience because he is omnipresent, because he sees everything that's coming in the future, because he created it. He rolled the ball on that millions of years ago. That's why Levi was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. The trees, the fruit trees of the garden, we may eat of the fruit trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. These fruit trees may very well be fruit trees. Now, some people may want to see them as allegorical trees, 
If they're allegorical trees, as I tried to explain last week, they could only represent the trees that every good tree which grows out of the ground after Adam is put in the garden can only represent the family lines of the Adamic race. And we see that same analogy used in the family lines of the Adamic race, as I pointed out last week, in Ezekiel chapter 30, I believe it was chapter 31, where the Assyrian is, is the tallest cedar in the garden of God. And all of the other Adamic families are described as various trees in the garden. Here, the fruit of the trees of the garden must be food trees. And we have a, um, an analogy in verse 3, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, well, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis chapter 2 establishes that. Do you have any comments on that? Not really, no. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. The big lie, right? For God does not know, for, for God does know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. That, that lie of the serpent, you, you know, that's the same lie that's used, you, you shall not surely die. That's the same lie that's used to promote race mixing today. Right, they promote it as something that's liberating, enlightening. Right, diversity is strength. The, the hybrid vigor myth, that they're only cunning substitutes for ye shall not surely die. And, and there are even Chicago Jews who have infiltrated Christian identity teaching that bastards shall live. That bastards are going to live and they're going to be judged by their deeds. He's the serpent saying, you shall not surely die. He's telling people that their bastard children are going to be judged by their good deeds and not by the fact they're bastards. That's the same thing that the serpent told Eve. You shall not surely die. Well, I think Christ himself said, and maybe I'm mistaken because I, I don't have the insight that Chicago Jews seem to have. I believe Christ said that every tree my heavenly Father did not plant shall be torn down and thrown into the furnace. Absolutely. And, and Yahweh created the horse, and Yahweh created the donkey, but he didn't create the mule. Absolutely. Bastards can never be accepted. I'm going to read from the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Epic of Gilgamesh, I believe, and, and I wrote a whole paper on this, it's called Shemitic Idioms in Genesis chapter 3. I wrote it, um, I, I don't know, probably about eight years ago while I was still in prison. The Epic of Gilgamesh existed in ancient Sumerian. It's one of the earliest surviving stories of our race. There are only fragments of it in the Sumerian language. It exists in much more complete form, even though not perfectly, but much more complete form in Akkadian. Akkadia, Akkadian, Akkad was the, um, the northern part of Mesopotamia, right? Above Babylonia, above ancient Sumer. Akkad was the what one of the capitals what one of the major cities of the the empire of of um Kush which Nimrod established but Akkad was also later the seat 
of the people of the Assyrians, the descendants of Asher of Genesis chapter 10, Asher the son of Shem, Asher being the eponymous ancestor of the Assyrians, Akkadian is what their language was called. Akkadian was very close. It, it's not exact, right? It, it's a dialect, but it was very close to both Hebrew and Aramaic, the language of the people of, of Aram or Syria. Now, Akkadian, Akkadian was the lingua franca, the language of trade and commerce for many centuries until the fall of Nineveh, their capital city, the destruction of the Assyrian Empire, when Aramaic actually had become, under the Babylonians and the Persians, Aramaic became the lingua franca until Alexander's time when, when Greek became the lingua franca, the language of trade and diplomacy. The Greeks were very well familiar with Akkadian, the Hebrews were very well familiar with Akkadian. It was a very similar dialect. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's household at the time when Akkadian was the lingua franca. And he would have had to know Akkadian. He would have had to have been familiar. Being raised in the, in the king's house in Egypt... He would have had to have he, he would have had an excellent classical education. He would have had the classical education that any other king's son had. And Paul explains that. Paul attributes that situation to Moses in Hebrews chapter eleven. Moses definitely would have been familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh. The the, the character Gilgamesh is mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Gilgamesh is mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls twice in the surviving scrolls in the Book of Giants. And the Epic of Gilgamesh tells us that Gilgamesh was one of the giants, just like Og, the king of Bashan, was one of the giants, just like Goliath was one of the giants. And we'll talk more about the giants when we get to Genesis chapter 6, but those giants are basically a historical and biblical fact that they existed. They may not have been as big as some of the stories that we hear, but that they existed is a historical and biblical fact. I say a historical fact because in the Epic of Gilgamesh and the other Sumerian and Akkadian literature, Gilgamesh is described as a giant. And he's described as having been created by gods who came down from heaven. And Kido, Enkidu, I'm sorry, Enkidu, E-N-K-I-D-U, he was also created by gods who came down from heaven. The giants were created by gods that came down from heaven in the Sumerian and Akkadian literature, which is just what we find in Genesis chapter 6, except the method of the creation was a little different, right? And, and well, we also find that in Greek, in, in Greek mythology. Well, there's language in, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is very, very similar to the language here in Genesis chapter 3, but it's much more explicit that we're told that this is language which describes a sexual awakening. Question, Bill. When you said you read the Epic of Gilgamesh in prison, I'm assuming you read it in English, but I don't know. I mean, maybe you, you know Sumerian or Akkadian. I, I don't know the... Oh, oh, no, 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 no. I read it in English. Um, oh, okay. Ancient Near 
ancient my, my my sources are all cited on Christogony.org in my papers, right? Ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament was published by Princeton University Press in 1969. It's based it, it's based on a hundred years of scholarship. It, it's um it's very well cited. It's very well referenced. It's very well footnoted. It's very academic, and it represents a large collection of ancient inscriptions relating to the to the Bible and biblical history and. It's, it represents at least five or six languages, Aramaic, inscriptions that were found in five or six languages, Sumerian, Akkadian, Egyptian, Aramaic, Hebrew. But it's, um, it, it's translated, the, the translations are made by a whole host of, acad, of mainstream academic scholars, right? I, I don't know if you really want to call people that read Sumerian and, and Babylonian, if you really want to call them mainstream, because it's... <laughs> It's really a very narrow scholastic field, right? Right. But, but it's yeah, you know the, the the best source for a lot of this data. I mean, ancient Near Eastern text relating to the Old Testament is a hundred and fifty dollar book, right? If you want to go to the um, University of Chicago, look up the Chicago Assyrian Dictionary on. Um, on Google, and that'll take you to the University of Chicago, and they have. A, an entire school which was devoted to the studies of Assyrian inscription, which was a very large and, and, and popular academic endeavor back in the 1920s and 30s and, and 40s. And it's, um, there are a lot of famous archaeologists who, who were there and, and who contributed work to it. And they had put together an Assyrian dictionary, a Hittite dictionary, a Sumerian dictionary that they have translated um, basically thousands of scrolls. I have about 300 PDFs on my hard drive, which are all downloaded from there. And I printed out probably a half dozen and, and have read them, which are all related to the, the Babylonian and the Assyrian myths. Aside from the, the, the inscriptions I've read in, in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, right? So, so it's, there's a whole wealth of information there from the ancient world, but which is just sitting there. I mean, it doesn't get a whole lot of attention from Bible scholars at all, but it's, it's of the utmost importance to understand that. It's of the utmost importance to understand that the Epic of Gilgamesh was a very popular story at the time of Moses. These inscriptions, these Akkadian inscriptions upon which Gilgamesh was found, date to the first half of the second millennium BC. They date to the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve patriarchs, and 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 their their um immediate descendants. So, so Moses, being educated in the household of Pharaoh, he had to be familiar with the language and the idiom and the story in the Epic of Gilgamesh, because it was very popular literature at the time. He had to be familiar with it. I'm going to read a couple of passages. In this Akkadian epic, Gilgamesh is a man, is a mighty man, and I'm reading from my paper, Shemitic Idioms in Genesis chapter 3. I won't burden us too long with this. 
Gilgamesh is a mighty man endowed with superhuman size, who rules as a king over the Mesopotamian city of Uruk, which is the Erech mentioned in Genesis 10.10 in the Bible. Gilgamesh is portrayed as a greedy, rapacious character and a harsh ruler who cannot be challenged, having neither rival nor equal. Therefore, the people of the land appealed to the god Anu for assistance. With this, the goddess Aruru is beckoned to create another mighty giant, and she complies, and she creates Enkidu to be a rival to Gilgamesh. Enkidu, created in the wilderness of the steppe, out of the way of civilization and any contact with humans, becomes a great friend and protector of wildlife. He's described as a sort of Tarzan come Dr. Doolittle of the ancient world. Soon, Enkidu puts animal hunters and trappers in fear, protecting the animals from them and putting them out of their means of living. Seeking relief, a hunter goes to Iraq and appeals to Gilgamesh to lend assistance against the mighty savage Enkidu. Rather than leave the city to confront his rival giant, Gilgamesh advises the, hunters to, he advises the hunter to subdue the savage giant by quite another method. And this is what Gilgamesh tells, a, a, and tells this hunter to do. And I'm quoting from the tablet of Gil, from the Epic of Gilgamesh, Tablet One, Part Three, Lines Forty to Forty Five. Go, my hunter, take with thee a harlot lass, a whore, right? When he waters the beasts at the watering place, she shall pull off her clothing, laying bare her ripeness. As soon as he sees her, he will draw near to her. Reject him will his beasts that grew up on his steppe, the grasslands of, 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 of northern Mesopotamia, right? The, um, throughout the epic, the, the beauty of the woman is described in terms that we would use of fruit. And, and, and there we just saw it, laying bare her ripeness. That's only one example, but there are many throughout the epic. The hunter does as Gilgamesh instructs him to do, and by carrying out the plot, he is quite successful. And here I will read from part 4, lines 16 through 39 of the same tablet. The lass freed her breasts, bared her bosom, and he possessed her ripeness, meaning Enkidu, the giant, right? She was not bashful as she welcomed his ardor. She laid aside her cloth, and he rested upon her. She treated him, the savage, to a woman's, to a woman's task, as his love was drawn near unto her. For six days and seven nights, Enkidu comes forth mating with the lass. After he had his fill of her charms, he set his face towards his wild beasts, on seeing him and Kidu, the gazelles ran off. The wild beasts of the steppe drew away from his body. Startled was Enkidu as his body became taut. His knees were motionless, for his wild beasts had gone. Enkidu had to slacken his pace. It was not as before. It slowed him down, supposedly, right? 
But now he had wisdom, broader understanding. And, and here, here, here we find that the idiom that once Eve ate from the tree, she would know good and evil. But now he had wisdom, broader understanding. Returning, he sits at the feet of the harlot. He looks up at the face of the harlot. His ears attentive as the harlot speaks. The harlot says to him, Enkidu, thou art wise. Enkidu, thou art become a god. And here we have in Genesis chapter 3 <laughs> that once your eyes are opened, ye shall be as gods. It's the same exact idiom. And it's also referring to a story about sexual awakening. Without a doubt. Why, with the wild creatures, dost thou roam over the steppe? Come, let me lead thee to ramparted Iraq. The whore is taking Enkidu back to the city of Gilgamesh, right? To the holy temple, the abode of Anu and Ishtar, where Gilgamesh lives, accomplished in strength, and like a wild ox, lords it over the folk. And of course, the, the, the Enkidu and Gilgamesh clash, and Gilgamesh prevails but doesn't kill him. They become friends, right? But here we have a story of sexual seduction, and with the sexual seduction and, and and, and doing what was done, and Kidu now had wisdom and broader understanding. This is a story about coming to sexual awakening. We see it in Gilgamesh. And Kidu, thou art wise, thou art become like a god. We see it in Genesis. And it's all contemporary literature. Moses, when Moses wrote this account, this parable in Genesis chapter 3, when Moses wrote this, the epic of Gilgamesh was being cut into clay in Assyria on a regular basis. And the story was being spread. It was spread far and wide enough for the authors, whoever they be, of the Book of Giants attributed to Enoch, to mention Gilgamesh amongst the giants on two occasions. The citations are in my paper on Christogenia.org, Shemitic Idioms, and Genesis chapter 3. Comments? Well, obviously the epic of Gilgamesh is quite important. I've, I haven't read it, so I'm not really competent to comment on the epic of Gilgamesh, but I'm wondering... Who is it that the importance that the importance is that this is a, a language very, very similar to Hebrew. It's it's basically a northern Semitic language where Hebrew is a western Semitic language or, or something like that. That that's how they're basically classified by linguists. However, the related tongues and we find a very educated man writing this parable in Hebrew and using idioms to describe a very similar episode. And he's using the same idioms that were used of a similar episode in the Akkadian Epic of Gilgamesh we find in Genesis chapter 3. 
So who's behind the seduction in Gilgamesh? Who's orchestrating it? Who's who's giving the instructions to go seduce Enkidu? Well, well, Gilgamesh gave the hunter the instructions to go get a whore and go seduce Enkidu, and then Enkidu would no longer be a, an impediment to his hunting, and it worked according to the epic, according to the storyline, right? But but that's not what's important. What's important is that those idioms, having wisdom, having become like a god, having broader understanding, because of sexual awakening, we see those same idioms used here in Genesis chapter 3 of sexual seduction. It's the same. It's the same story with the same idioms. It's just told in two different venues for two different purposes. That makes sense. That's the important part here. The words eat and touch, I don't know if you want to go through this information from Clifton Emmerheiser's special notice to all who, decide, who, all who deny two seed line part five all right. and, and, and discuss that and, and maybe run down eat and touch from, from the definitions and scriptural examples that Clifton provides and I'll give my big mouth a break. What was it that Eve did eat, and what did Eve touch? Eat, 398, a call to eat, also to lay. Scripture, Genesis 313, And Yahweh said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. With supporting Scripture, Proverbs 3020, Such is the way of an adulterous woman, she eateth and wipeth her mouth, or in other words, vagina or vulva, and saith, I have done no wickedness. I was not aware of that, that the allusion to the mouth in Scripture was often just, a, I guess, a polite reference to the, the genitals. Well, well that is, that, that's Clifton's words, right? That's Clifton's right. interpolation. I, I'd cert, in this case, in Proverbs 30, 20, I don't disagree, right? Right, I, I agree, but I've, just, I've never thought of it that way. It, it never occurred to me until reading it now. Okay, but that is Clifton's comment. Let's qualify that. All right. So how would the um, evangelicals explain that then? That Oh, this woman's wicked because she ate something she shouldn't have ate, so she wiped her mouth. You sneak over to your neighbor's house, and he shares some of his birthday cake with you, and you go back to your husband, and you say, I didn't do anything wrong. That's silly. Further supporting scripture, Proverbs 9, 17, stolen waters are sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Now, now, in there, eaten is actually added to the text. However, it's the idiom that's important. Bread in secret is pleasant. And, and of course, it's talking about bread eaten as an allegory for stolen waters. Now, now waters, you know, what waters, the, the fount of... Uh, Waters in, in various scriptures, Jeremiah chapter 2 comes to mind, broken cisterns. Um, there are several proverbs that advise us to drink out of our own cistern. And, and if we do that, then our waters will abundantly overflow, right, as long as we're drinking out of our own cistern. In other words, the waters represent um, the sexual act and, and our race and the mating process and, and, and basically the river of God, 
So, so stolen waters are sweet. What? Well, stealing your neighbor's wife, right? It, it's it's a um, stolen waters are sweet. Stealing your neighbor's wife, bread eaten in secret, having a um, an affair with her is pleasant. Well, well, yeah, sure, it is pleasant, but it's wrong, right? It, it's it's well, some people may find it unpleasant and they should but it's a temporary physical enjoyment which is very tempting and you may enjoy it while it's going on you're going to pay for it down the road right but that's the analogy that's being made stolen waters are sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant and any surreptitious sexual affair you might enjoy it while it's going on. And and that's the analogy that's being made here. All right. And Clifton notes that the eat of, of Genesis 3.13 is the same word for eat in Proverbs 30.20, but the word eat in Proverbs 9.17 is only implied. But it's the idiom that matters. It, it's the idiom, it, it's what's being said in the allegory that's important and that's what Clifton is making an example of that this word eat in reference to the tree of knowledge of good and evil certainly can have and should have it should be interpreted to have a sexual connotation that's all Clifton's saying I agree continuing note the word eat of Genesis 3.13 is the same word for eateth of Proverbs 30.20. In Proverbs 9.17, eaten is implied. Touch, 50.60. Nagah, to touch, also to have sexual intercourse. Scripture in Genesis 3.3 states, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And later, we're told, touch not the unclean thing, and I shall receive you. Right. Come out from among them, and touch not the unclean. The word sing is added to the text. It's talking about people, right? right. And I shall receive you. Touch them not. Right. It, it means don't have communion with them. Don't have sexual relationships with them. Certainly don't marry them. Well, sexual relationships are marriage. Right. The, the, um, the reference is the same. You're right. Would evangelicals say that, that that just means don't you know um, pat a guy in the back if he's never um, if he hasn't washed himself? I mean, do they say that? Oh, that's literally unclean. That guy's dirty. He's living under a bridge. Don't touch him. Don't shake his hand. Touch not the unclean. Well, right. I don't really know how evangelicals and 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 mainstream well, well uh, denominations. I don't know how they handle that 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 scripture. I'm sure they pervert it in one way or another. Basically, the unclean is everyone who's not a child of Israel because Christ only cleansed Israel on the cross. Everybody else is unclean. Okay. Going on, or do you have something further? No, go on. Additional scripture, Genesis 26, 10 through 11. And Abimelech said, What is this thou hast done unto us? One of the people might lightly have leaned with thy wife, and thou shouldest have brought guiltness 
upon us. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He that toucheth this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Additional supporting scripture, Genesis 26. And Yahweh said unto him, Abimelech, in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her, Sarah. And, and it means in a sexual manner. That there's no doubt from the context of Genesis chapter 20 that that's referring to Abimelech's not having sex with Sarah. And the word touch is used to represent that act. Additional supporting scripture, Proverbs 6.29. So he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. Right. And there we see again the word touch used in relation to, as, in, as, as a, basically, as, wow, I lost my word as an allegory representing the sexual act. It, it's a euphemism. A polite way. It, it's a polite way of describing the sexual act, which is what a euphemism is. Yes, that's what it is. And eat and touch in Genesis chapter 3, which is a parable, those words are euphemisms representing the act of sex, the act of sexual relations. Disconcerting that today we have probably 30 or 40 vulgar ways to describe the act of sex, but people can't recognize that, oh, they're referring to sex here because it's a polite way. Well, well they don't want to because they have an agenda and, and because they won't admit that even though they're 50 or 60 or 70 years old, they still believe the child's apple story, right? That They still believe the apple story that, that was designed for children. All right. Note, the word touch of Genesis 3, 3 is the same for touch or toucheth from Genesis 26, 11, 26, and Proverbs 6, 29. Conclusion, both the words eat and touch can have sexual connotations when they are in that context. Absolutely. There should be no doubt. And, and, and those who, who, who would argue with that are, are simply, I don't know, heart of heart. They're, they're, they're simply being obstinate. Would you like to read the commentary section of Clifton's notes? This is from Clifton Emmeheiser's special notice to all who deny two seed line number five. Now for some remarks from various commentaries on these passages which contain the words touch and eat as used in Genesis 3.3. Matthew Poole's commentary on the Holy Bible on the word touch of Genesis 26.11, volume 1, page 61. And being applied to a woman, it is used for a defiling or humbling of her as Genesis 26, Proverbs 6:29. Now, 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 real quick, real quick, I don't read commentaries, right? Clifton has made a lot of good work of commentaries, there's no doubt. I don't know what Matthew Poole says about the word touch in Genesis chapter 3, but he certainly should have included it in here, in this list, in this short list of where it applies to defiling women, right? right. And obviously he didn't, and and if he didn't, only his training at, at, as a mainstream sectarian and denominational Christian, only that training could get in the way. Because it certainly belongs in the list, right? I'm sorry, go on. 
The Adam Clark's commentary on the Bible, abridged by Ralph Earl Early, on the word touch of Genesis 26:11, page 54. He that toucheth, he who injures Isaac or defiles Rebekah shall certainly die for it. Back to Matthew Poole's commentary on the Holy Bible on the word touch of Proverbs 6.29, volume 2, page 224. That goeth in to his neighbor's wife that lieth, lieth with her, as the phrase signifies. Genesis 19.31, 29.21, etc. Toucheth her, have, has carnal knowledge of her, as this word is used in Genesis 26, 1 Corinthians 7.1, and in Terence and other writers, shall not be innocent, shall be punished as a malefactor, either by God or man. The Interpreter's Bible, on the word touch, of Proverbs 6.29, volume 4, page 8.22, there is no escape from the dire punishment that awaits the man who indulges in illicit love. Matthew Poole's commentary on the Holy Bible, on the word eat, of Proverbs 30.20, volume 2, page 274, such so secret and undiscernible is the way of the adulterous woman, of her who, though she be called and accounted a maid, yet in truth is an adulteress, not a common strumpet, for of such the following words are not true, but one that secretly lives in the sin of adultery or fornication. She eateth to wit the bread of deceit in secret, by which is understood the act of filthiness. Proverbs 9:17, 2017 which such persons do as greedily desire and as delightfully feed upon as hungry persons do upon bread. The Adam Clark's commentary in the Bible, abridged by Ralph Early, on the word eat of Proverbs 9.17, page 541. Stolen waters are sweet. I suppose this is to be a proverbial mode of expression importing that illicit pleasures are sweeter than those which are legal. So, so all of these men, all of these Bible scholars can pontificate about the sexual meaning of the words eat and touch when used of women in Genesis 26, in Proverbs 6, in, 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 in all of these other passages, and they all just kind of skip over Genesis chapter 3. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. I'm sure if one of them had included Genesis chapter 3 in their survey of these words, eat and touch, then Clifton would have quoted it, and Clifton would have, would have trumpeted it. But they all miss it, and, and that's absolutely amazing. This Matthew Poole goes on, on, on this word touch. He goes back to Genesis 19, Genesis 29, and, and, and Genesis chapter 20, and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But he misses Genesis 3 3. That's incredible. And, and that's only an, an exposition of the, the, the stumbling stones that these men ha, have had thrown in their paths to, through the formal training that they've had. In, in their religion. That, that's the way I look at it. Uh, if, if you are simply a clear thinker and read your Bible, that there's no doubt that these words, eat and touch, even without the understanding of the epic of Gilgamesh, these words, eat and touch, are clearly referring to a, a sexual context.
Verse 6, Genesis chapter 3. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and, she, and he did eat. The obvious question is, what did Adam eat? And, and, and that's a question that's always asked. What did Adam do? Did he engage in a homosexual relationship? Did, did well, he... at this point, simply accepting her in her state of disgrace and defilement, that is basically partaking of the sin. Absolutely. There's no doubt. That, that's all he needs to do is accept Eve and, and, and possibly perform the act with her. It, it, it's... Um, Right. His so it was, it was, of his wife is, is, enough, is enough of a sin to cause his fall. There's no doubt. It would be sufficient that you know she discovers what sex is with the serpent, then she brings it to him and they have sex, and he, he's done that now with her in her present state. Right. There's a story, in, and, and it's from the Talmud. It, it's in the Talmud. It's um, a story about a female demon named Lilith. L-I-L-I-T-H. And, and the Lilith story, the, the Talmudists, the rabbis in the Talmud claim that Lilith was Adam's first wife. And, and if Lilith was the name of the demon that Adam ate, meaning had a sexual relationship with, well, well th then that would be true. Lilith would be Adam's first wife. However, while that while that's a possibility, Lilith is mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls, apart from the Talmud. Lilith is mentioned. She's mentioned in an odd context, though. Let, let me say that the um, a reference to Lilith is found in the Dead Sea Scroll designated 4Q510, and it's a fragment of what is called Songs of the Sage. And Songs of the Sage is a sectarian document in the Qumran manuscripts. It's not a document that's a copy of a book of scripture or of an apocryphal work, right? It, it, they had a lot of their own sectarian documents, which were community instructions and prayers and, and their own little psalms and things like that. Songs of the Sage, in a part of fragment one, says, declare the splendor of his radiance in order to frighten and terrify all the spirits of the ravaging angels and the bastard spirits, demons, Lilith, owls, and jackals, and those who strike unexpectedly to lead astray the spirit of knowledge to make their hearts forlorn. So, so we see an, what one reference of Lilith in the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's the only reference I've ever seen of Lilith in, in any um, apocryphal literature. However, the Lilith story is in the Jewish Talmud. Now, I don't buy the Lilith story for, for the most part, and, and I believe that it's an, an embellishment on Scripture. Even though we have to hold out the possibility that Adam did have a sexual relationship from someone with the tree from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that's only because when you get to Genesis 3.12, Genesis 3.12 seems to imply that Adam's interaction was with the tree, that he had an illicit sexual union aside from Eve. 
However, you're right, and the only thing that matters is that Adam did indeed accept Eve after she ate from the tree. And that alone would be enough to cause the fall. Now, now without any explicit scripture, I'm not going to try to conjecture what Adam actually did and say that that's the truth, right? Because it really doesn't matter. It's clear that he accepted Eve. It's clear that he transgressed, and according to Paul of Tarsus, that he transgressed without being deceived, meaning that he made a conscious choice. Comments? Well, we could debate all day exactly what shape, what form, what manner his transgression took, but as we've just established, it's essentially irrelevant, because as long as at the bare minimum... He accepted her in her present condition, her present state. That is sufficient for the completion of the fall. Absolutely. And if anybody wants to insist that it was a female demon, if anybody wants to insist that it was a a female from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, let's put it that way, if anybody wants to insist it was a homosexual relationship, that they're just conjecturing the Bible, right? That they're only conjecturing. That you can't beat anybody over the head with it, such an insistence and, and assert that it's true because it. I, I don't know if it can be proven at all. I've never read anything that, that helps me in my understanding of it in any of the apocryphal literature. And there's certainly nothing explicit in Scripture. So we don't know. We know that he accepted Eve. And we know that he sinned in the manner that Eve did. However, that his sin was not by deception, that he made a conscious decision. And that's the words of Paul of Tarsus. Verse 7. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. Yeah, you want to comment on that? Because I'm going to quote a paragraph from Shemitic Idioms in Genesis chapter 3, but you're welcome to comment first. Well, like you said, this goes back to the Epic of Gilgamesh, that sex leads to the understanding of, how, how should I say, human sexuality, I suppose. That well, all right. Reproduction, human sexuality, their eyes were open, that, that there is gods now. It's all a story of sexual awakening. Now they understand their nakedness, and they understand that they just can't go walking around naked anymore. That what Well, they, well, they understand their nakedness, so they're covering the scene of the crime. Clifton likes to say that if they ate an apple, they'd be putting bags over their heads. They'd be covering their mouths. If it was a thought crime, they'd be covering their heads, as Ted Wheeland insists, and and that 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 is more along the lines of my paraphrase of Clifton. But but um, they're covering the scene of the crime. I, I'm going to quote a paragraph I wrote in Shemitic Idioms in Genesis chapter three. Is the Genesis chapter three account also about sexual seduction and awakening? in reference to the same idioms used in the same manner in the Epic of Gilgamesh, in, in reference to Enkidu, the giant. And, and I said, of course it is. And so the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. At aprons, in, in my 
footnote in, in the King James Study Bible I have by Thomas Nelson Publishers, copyright 1988. It, it's actually a study Bible based on notes from Liberty University. At aprons, the footnote says, girding coverings, girding your loins, in other words. Adam and Eve, ashamed of themselves after their sexual awakening, attempted to conceal their nudity by covering their bodies and specifically their loins, as that type of garment alone is sufficient enough to inform us, thereby hiding the scene of the crime and the source of their feelings of guilt, which is human nature. Note that Adam and Eve were naked before their seduction, and they were not ashamed in Genesis 2.25. The Genesis chapter 3 account is all about sexual seduction, written in the parable containing the same ancient Shemitic idioms which we saw in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and which the Epic of Gilgamesh therefore certainly helps us to understand. So the real question is, who is the serpent? We've already answered that, and, and we'll get into that more in, in the next segment of this series. Paul of Tarsus, and I've already quoted him once where he made a direct analogy in, in 1 Corinthians 7.5. Paul of Tarsus made another, I think it was 7.5. Paul of Tarsus made another reference relating the sin in the garden to the loss of Eve's virginity in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. I'm sorry, verses 2 and 3. For I admire you with the zeal of Yahweh, for I have joined you to one husband to present a chaste virgin to Christ. He's talking about a, a, a new assembly of, of Christians, which he founded in Corinth, right? But I fear, lest in any way as the serpent had thoroughly beguiled even his villainy, your thoughts would be corrupted from that sincerity and that purity which is with the anointed. So, so we see the virginity of Eve and the possibility of its being corrupted as the servant corrupted Eve. We see applied to the virginity, the, the, the allegorical virginity of the new Christian assemblies and, and Paul's desire that they not become corrupted in, in like manner through the deception of the serpent. Just perhaps not sexually, perhaps doctrinally. So what do you say to people who want to spiritualize the Genesis 3 account? Well, Genesis chapter, three, Genesis chapter 3 sets the course for history to revolve around the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Abel, right. just, so, like the, 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 just like that is narrowed down again later on in Genesis, um, in, in the later chapters of Genesis in, in the 20s with, with the Genesis 29 or, or whatever with the stories of um, Jacob and Esau. Right. But Genesis chapter 3 it is a parable describing the, the corruption of the Adamic creation. The fallen angels had already corrupted the, rest, the, the, the beginning of Yahweh's creation and, and the animal world 
and, and that's described in the Enoch literature, they had already mixed their seed and, and, and corrupted themselves, which is why, as Jude and Peter explain, they're bound in chains of darkness awaiting the day of Yahweh's wrath. And, and, and well, they're the other races, and they're all going into the lake of fire that day. And that's what Jude and Peter are really talking about. Those fallen angels made themselves the non-white races. And, and we established a lot of that in, in our Genesis chapter 2 presentation. The Genesis chapter 3 account is instrumental in understanding the rest of the Bible in a proper way because the descendants of Cain have a serious, and, and the Rephaim and, and the Canaanites whom, whom the descendants of Cain intermingle with and other peoples that the descendants of Cain intermingled with and, and the mystery of iniquity revolves around those people and, and how they've been able to infiltrate amongst us because only for one reason, there's only one reason why the fallen angels were able to infiltrate amongst us, and that's because we were weak and mated with them. Because of our own incontinence. And that's why they're dangerous to us. But it'll be okay in the um, kingdom. They'll just go back to where they came from and we'll have our Shekinah glory restored and there'll be no more mixing. There'll be no more mixing because the fallen angels will be judged and there will only be one race left, and that's the sheep race. Right, goats and sheep. You might be able to try to squeeze a nigger into Genesis chapter 1, but you sure as hell aren't going to squeeze a nigger into Genesis, into Revelation chapter 21. It's not going to happen. The, the city of God is that the only people that get into that city are the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Their names are on the gates. Nobody else is invited. Only sheep nations are invited. There are no goats there. The goats go off into the lake of fire. That's all, the, all, all of the eschatology of Christ and all of the eschatology of the prophets insists on that. That there should be no doubts. It's a disgrace. It's an absolute disgrace that identity Christians even accept people that argue those simple points. It shouldn't be two seed line. I mean, I'm not going to abandon the term two seed line because some idiots use it. It should really be two tree line. That's where the distinction is. That, that's where the real distinction is made in Genesis 2 9. The enemies of God are in Genesis 2 9 in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It doesn't start in Genesis 3.15. It had already started before Adam was put here. And the enemy first appears in Genesis 2 9. And you're either part of the creation of Yahweh. One of those people who came from heaven, as the Apostle John explains in 1 John chapter 4, you're either part of the creation of Yahweh or you're part of the corruption of those fallen angels who rebelled from Yahweh. In Revelation chapter 12, described in Luke chapter 10, described as the tree of knowledge of good and evil in Genesis, from Genesis 2.9. That's where the that that's where the adverse the adversity begins. Now, from Genesis three fifteen, biblical history for a long period of time is focused around those parties, the descendants of Cain 
and the descendants of Adam through Seth. And there's no doubt, and, and we'll see that as this series progresses, and once it gets to Esau, who goes off and basically mates with Cain's daughters instead of Adam's, he becomes the focal point of, of the wrath of God in history down through today. However, that doesn't rule out the rest of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That doesn't take them out of the picture. That, that doesn't um, demonstrate that God's will towards them has changed. Not one bit. Simply because the focal point has become Jacob and Esau doesn't mean that God's all of a sudden going to accept those other branches of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He certainly isn't. It's simply that white history and the biblical story is narrowed down to revolve around these two people. But the rest of the branches on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Yahweh did not plan, they're still going to be rooted up and destroyed. That's why all the nations, when the Son of Man returns, all the nations are gathered, and all the goats go into the fire, and all the sheep go into the kingdom of heaven. It's all genetic, and you're either part of the creation, as the Apostle John explains, you're born from God, or you're part of the corruption, as the Apostle John explains, you're born of the world. If you're origin is of the world. That means you're born in sin. That means you're a bastard. You're of mixed race. You're of a race that Yahweh God did not create. You're born of the world. The Apostle John clearly explains in that chapter that there are people here in the world whose origin is not with God. And there's a hell of a lot of them. This just isn't fair, Bill. I mean, so you're telling me that a good goat has to go into the lake of fire while a a bad sheep gets to go into the kingdom. That's just that's well, horrible. Well, do, do you want to do, do you want to look at the um, at the world through through the word of God in Scripture or through the subjective judgment of man? Exactly. That's what it boils down to. So it's not a matter of what man deems fair and unfair. Man does not hold the balance of justice judging the world. That's why Paul says, as in Adam, all men die, meaning Adamic men, as in Christ, all men shall be made alive, meaning Adamic men. And there are no non-Adamic men in that, in, in that equation. All of the non-Adamic men are goats headed for the lake of fire. They shouldn't even be called men. They're beasts. And the clown, the Jew bastard claiming to be an identity pastor from Chicago, he wants to say that they're beasts in Genesis and call them men in Revelation. If they're beasts in Genesis, I got news for you. They're beasts in the Revelation. If you're a beast in the creation, you're a beast at the end of time because Yahweh's law is kind after kind. You can't take a beast and make a man out of him. Well, what if, you, um, what if your name is Darwin and you believe in evolution? Yeah, right. Well, if your name is November and you believe in corruption. (laughs) The words of Christ say that all of the goats go into the fire. That's the decision of God because that's, he created the sheep. He created the Adamic race. He didn't create the other races. He didn't create anything that's bad, as Clifton likes to say. 
You can't read Genesis chapter 1 and see anything God created that he called bad. So why is Christ saying in, in, in Matthew chapter 13 that the net pulls up every kind and there's good kinds and there's bad kinds? And the only way to explain that is the way the Apostle John explained it in 1 John chapter 4. That there's people born of God. That's our race. That's the Adamic race. And there's people born of the world. And the whole world lies under the power of the wicked one. And guess what? Those people born of the world, they didn't come from God. They're corruptions of Yahweh's creation. And you cannot hold Yahweh God responsible for the corruptions of men and angels. You can't do it. You're not going to go have a, a, a child with a, a bush monkey and, and expect your creator to accept that thing. It's not going to happen. Bush monkey. Well, that, that's basically what they are. That, that is what they are. That's absolutely what they are. That that's you know that this things that this beast of the field thing we really didn't treat it yet. You know, Clifton did a lot of research on it, and 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 it's you know it's for the most part it's pretty solid research, and he found that that this word in the Septuagint, which um, the Hebrew translators of the Septuagint chose to to portray that that this word which is translated satyrs in English. It, it basically comes from a Greek word, honokentorus, which means a tailless ape. And, and where it says in Isaiah, and as part of the judgment on Babylon, that satyrs would dwell there, it's saying in Greek that tailless apes would dwell there. And if you want to look at these Arab peoples that are dwelling there now, you know, by the word of God, that they're nothing but tailless apes. That's what they are. That's what the Word of God says that they are. And God is not taking credit for their creation. He's not taking credit for the creation of non-Adamic cognitive hominids in Genesis chapter 1. If he doesn't take credit, I'm not going to give him the blame. Not by any means. Okay. Well, I thought we'd get to Genesis 3.13 tonight. We didn't even get halfway there, practically. We will probably conclude Genesis chapter 3 next Saturday. That, that's the goal right now. All right. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I will be here next Friday with Acts chapter 18. If you hadn't heard my Acts series, I suggest that you do. You won't find... An exposition, I don't think, on the book of Acts today, which correlates the book of Acts with, with the scripture and history, like the one that I'm present, presenting. I, I don't like to beat my own chest, but it, it's just a fact. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night. See you next weekend.